0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, August the 31st, 2023. It is currently 11.07 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Did you notice that date? It is August the 31st, the last day of August. We're going to call this for our purposes, the last day of summer for summer 2023. It comes to an end at midnight tonight because we have dedicated this entire summer of 2023 to the book of Jeremiah We have had our twists and turns. There's been ups, there's been downs. Things have gone well, things have not gone so well. We started off strong. We lost a lot of people in the midst of it. But here we are on the last day of August, and this will be the last day of our study of the book of Jeremiah. Whatever we've accomplished, we look, we're just going to try to bring it to a dramatic end today. Um, Hopefully, Um, hopefully we will bring it to uh, a dramatic conclusion tonight. I'm going to try to be broadcasting starting somewhere at around 11 p.m. and try to end it at midnight. That's the goal. That's the idea. I mean, I feel like that we've done, I feel like in some ways we've already kind of completed the book, right? So what we're really doing is just doing a little bit of extra. Trying to say, hey, if we're going to give ourselves all the way to midnight, August the 31st, I don't want to say, well, you know what, we've done enough. Let's just let's just take a break. I'm just going to do as much as I can on the book of Jeremiah leading all the way to the conclusion tonight and hopefully someone will find it to be beneficial. We have we have given you uh, over 61 hours of teaching on the book of Jeremiah in about a 3-month period. 61 hours of teaching in a 3-month period. I don't know. I, I I don't. I don't know how other people perceive that, right? Do people perceive the value in sixty-one hours? Do people shrug their shoulders and like, I don't really care that you broadcasted for sixty-one hours on the Book of Jeremiah within a three-month period? I got better things to do. I don't know how you perceive that. I look at that going, wow, that's. That's a lot of content on just the book of Jeremiah in a three-month period. I I think that that is somewhat of an accomplishment. Now, one could argue, quality-wise, not so good, but there's no one can debate the quantity of what we have done. And you would hope that out of all of those 60-plus hours of teaching, that someone found something beneficial, something helpful something useful you would think but um you know <laughs> some some obviously did not but we've done our best and so here's what we're doing we we got to the end of the book of Jeremiah chapter 52 and I don't know about you the ending of Jeremiah <laughs> leaves me like so perplexed and so confused like how in the world is that the way the book going to end Like what? So we we get just like, okay, these people were deported. Then these people were deported. Then these people were deported. These people were taken into captivity to Babylon. Okay, that's already depressing enough, but it ends with the overall theme of this book. I mean, if you really think about it it is God's the, the God's nation, God's chosen nation of Israel and Judah them trying to live a life under a system that says, do this and live and don't, don't do do this and live and don't do this and die. This nation, God's nation trying to live under that system. All they're going to do is fail, 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 fail. And there's going to be judgment. There's going to be death and there's going to be captivity. And their only hope is not what them trying harder, them doing more. Their only hope is that when God steps in and says, I will, I will, I will. That's why I want you to find those 15 I wills in Jeremiah 31. That's why Jeremiah 31 is so important. So it really ends in a very depressing way. Like these people are being taken into captivity. These people are being taken into captivity. These people are being taken into captivity. And you're like, well, that's depressing. And then it ends with the very weird story there of Jehoiachin, the cursed king that no one from his line will ever reign on the throne of David, right? And then you're like, well, wait a minute. why He's in Babylon. The king of Babylon's like, hey, Jehoiachin, come on out of prison. I'm going to put you on a throne and I'm going to take good care of you. And then he dies. And then that's the end of the book. And you're kind of like, uh wait, what? You would hope that the book would end you, you, you when you read Jeremiah 31, you kind of like if it was up to me and nobody was looking, I'd be like, okay, Jeremiah 31 is actually Jeremiah 52 and Jeremiah 52 is actually Jeremiah 31. Like, I almost want to reverse the order. You want the book to end in the glorious hope that God will do something. He's not done with this nation. He's That that before him, this nation exists. No matter what is happening on earth, the nation still exists before God. He's made promises to them. And as He literally judged them, He will literally bless them with these promises that He made a new covenant with them. And so we, 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 I mean, I don't know how much more to stress how beautiful that chapter is, and that's why I told you to read Jeremiah 31. So when we got to the end of Jeremiah 52, which it just ends so weird, we kind of went backwards and we did a little bit of work on Jeremiah 31. In fact, we really did two more messages on Jeremiah 31. But there's another chapter that leads to constant people ripping it out of context, and that's Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, over and over again... People quote this verse, Jeremiah chapter twenty nine, verse eleven. Here we go. Uh, well, I'm going to go Jeremiah. Well, I'll go Jeremiah twenty nine eleven because this is the verse that's always quoted. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, sayeth the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is used. Constantly, if you if you look on Christian book distributors, their little catalog they send out, look at all. I hate to say it, look at all the junk that they throw Jeremiah twenty nine eleven on pens, coffee mugs, you name it, and and people little plaques, little things you can give to someone graduating from college or high school. They just they sell all of this junk that they just rip Jeremiah twenty nine eleven out of context, throw it on these. And then people buy them and give them as gifts. I don't know what it's supposed to accomplish because all it tells me is that whoever bought you the gift doesn't understand the Bible, doesn't understand how to read the Bible, doesn't understand basic Bible interpretation. And you may, instead of, you may want to take the gift and then you may want to immediately give them another gift, maybe a book on Bible interpretation and and a book on Bible hermeneutics. And they may say, why are you giving me this? Well, because you gave me a gift that demonstrates you have no clue what you're talking about. Okay. All right. Maybe you shouldn't do that because you may cause a problem with your family, but you get the idea. So I thought, since I wanted everyone to get Jeremiah 31 and I wanted you to read it 10 times. And identify the fifth, the the, uh, the I wills, the 15 I wills in Jeremiah 31. I wanted you to read Jeremiah 29 at, at least five times so that the next time someone quotes verse 11 out of context, you could correct it. So I thought, here's what we would do, because I was just looking around at random sermons on Jeremiah, and I came across a sermon called The Fuller Meaning of Jeremiah 29 11. I'm like, ooh. They've got the fuller meaning. Now, I'm hoping that their fuller meaning is they're going to put it in historical context. But you know what I do? When I find a sermon like this, I don't listen to it in advance. I grab the audio and we listen to it together. So to get us back into Jeremiah 29, to really reinforce this idea, to make sure when this, the summer of Jeremiah is over, as someone said in chat, Jeremiah Fest, when we end this, when we end Jeremiah, I wanted to make sure th- chapter 31, you know without a doubt. Chapter 29, you know without a doubt. There are some other chapters I think you should know as well. But those are the two that we are focusing on as we try to wrap this all up. So let's listen to this sermon. We'll, we'll review it, analyze it, critique it. Um, the fuller meaning of Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm hoping... I'm hoping they're going to say, everyone misunderstands this. I'm going to be somewhat, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to wait and see. I'm just going to wait and see. But are you ready? So all we're doing is we're just adding to our study of Jeremiah. We're just adding, reinforcing, reminding, just trying to to make sure you are as, when you're done with this book, you've got certain things down. All right. So are you ready? Ready? This is all extra. No extra cost for any of this. All right. Obviously, you haven't had to pay for any of it, but you get the idea. Here we go. Welcome to the
1: live stream portion of what we do here each weekend at the Household of Faith in Christ online at householdoffaithinchrist.com. You can Visit there and catch up on all our previous sermons, learn more about what we're all about, find good Christian uh, vetted resources, and uh, all my contact information is there if you're looking for a good church. We might be a fit, but maybe you don't live nearby or we're just not a good fit for what you're looking for, but you're looking for a church, you can reach out to me. I'm always happy to help people plug in to good Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, faithful churches. So without further ado, let's uh, get into our sermon message for the day. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's difficult to say what the most commonly Bible verse would be if we were to run around asking a bunch of Christians the question, so what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Certainly John 3.16 would make that list so too would Psalm 23, verse 4, I trust. And it might be a silly thing to try to determine, but I think if somehow we were to be inspired by the old late show with David Letterman and try to come up with the top 10 most popularly quoted verses of the Bible, I think it's a safe bet that Jeremiah 29, verse 11 would be on the list. Jeremiah 29:11. it's so popular because it's so comforting, I suppose. And we all have a tendency to gravitate towards those things that make us feel good, hence our difficulty in breaking sinful habits. And sometimes we like things for the wrong reasons, actually. And it-
0: Just a thought. I do know we're drawn to things that bring comfort or bring pleasure or bring joy. I don't know if that's why it's difficult to break quote-unquote sinful habits. Maybe it's difficult to break sinful habits. Just a thought, because we still have a sinful nature. Just a thought, just a thought. I I could be wrong, because we still have body as a flesh. Oh, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I could be wrong. I, I Now, yes, we could say sin is pleasurable, and we like pleasure, so therefore it's difficult to break anything that is pleasurable. That is true, but I think the main thing, the reason we have trouble with sin is because of the internal nature that is still present even after salvation. I just, I just I always have to emphasize that whenever I hear someone look for some other reason why. It's, we still have a sinful nature. You, It's literally in your nature to sin. It's literally who you are. It's literally your default position. Your default position is sin. That's who you are at your very nature. That's who, you, that's who you are. We may not want to acknowledge what we are. I know this is not the point here. I want to see what he's going to do with Jeremiah 29, 11. So I'll stop. We'll save that for a different podcast. But okay. All right. Jeremiah 29, 11. All right. So he's correct. People definitely love Jeremiah 29, 11. It does bring some sense of peace or some sense of comfort, and we are drawn to that. I, I, all right, I got that. Let's see what he's going to do with it. All right, here we go. It can end up being
1: good for us anyway. For example, I knew a guy once. He would wear the same hat all the time. Almost every day he wore this hat, and he wore it because, well, he thought it made him look cool. Well, despite this self-absorbed reason for wearing the hat, it did, in fact, shield him from the elements. so... He liked it for the wrong reasons, but it did him some good anyway. I think oftentimes we're prone to reading a verse like Jeremiah 29, verse 11, as merely a message of comfort, saying that God is full of love and peace and mercy. And then we apply this feel-good message directly to ourselves as individuals. And this isn't horrible as far as it goes, God is without a doubt full of love and grace and mercy. And God's word, it does apply to us as individuals. However, if we were to end our scratching of the surface after unearthing only these very few fine nuggets, well, this is to keep us from discovering the fullness of the, the, the riches that await us in the depths
0: of fuller understanding. So, okay, now... When he says it does apply to us as individuals, is he saying 29.11 applies to us as individuals? Or is he just saying the basic concept that God knows the thoughts that I think towards you say the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end? Now, you got to be really careful if you tell someone, hey, God's thoughts uh, towards you uh, are a peace and not of evil. God has no, God, God is only going to do like, because how do you understand that? God's only, God's only thoughts towards me is that only good things are going to come in my life. Only blessings are going to come in my life. Is, is that like, huh? when you say it, it's applicable, which concept there do you think is applicable that God knows that uh, for, I know the thoughts that I think towards you say it, the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil. Like, do, what do you mean by that? That God has only thoughts of peace and no, no, nothing bad's going to come into your life. Like what part is applicable now, I'm, I, I want, my, my immediate thought here is just stop, go back to Jeremiah 29.1 and walk through this and show you exactly who it's referring to. But I mean, I think you can figure it out if you've been reading the book of Jeremiah. And if you've read this chapter five times, like I've challenged you to do so, it's pretty easy to figure it out. But I'm going to let him do that because he says we need to find the fuller meaning. All right. So he offered like, he didn't really explain exactly. He seemed to say the concept is applicable, but I don't know exactly which concept he means is applicable. Right, but but I, I I will just wait there and see what he's going to do. Where is he going to take us here? Where is he going to take us? Because if he's got the fuller meaning, I want to know the fuller meaning. Have I missed the fuller meaning? Have we all missed the fuller meaning? Or is the fuller meaning just the fuller meaning? Is these are words for those who are coming out of Babylonian captivity? I know I'm giving it away, but but let's let's see let's see where he's going. I want to know what the fuller meaning. What is the fuller meaning? I want to know what the fuller meaning is. So what is the fuller understanding of this
1: verse? Well, to answer this question, I think we do well to begin by
0: understanding the context of the verse. Okay, now that's good. I like that. To understand the fuller meaning, we need to understand the fuller context. I'm with you. All right, right now we're, we're, we're locked in now. Okay, there was a little rough start there. I didn't know exactly what you were doing, but okay, okay, we're good. Okay, here we go. We're good to go. The fuller context. Let's look at the fuller context. Here we go. When we think about context, we might most often
1: envision considerations of where the particular passage falls within the book that's being studied. And certainly, this literary context is very important. But that's not all that we should keep in view. I mean, after all, God revealed himself in the context of the history of redemption, in which history he, he acted in mercy. And judgment to redeem his people and so we're going to look at the passages of Jeremiah that precede and follow the 11th verse of the 29th chapter we are going to do that but we're going to be paying special attention to what is called the redemptive historical context of Jeremiah's message from God so who's Jeremiah the prophet lived about 2600 years ago lived in the southern kingdom of Judah at a very difficult time in that nation's history. It's a history that finds its beginning, in a sense, at the beginning of time, when God created the universe, the early chapters of the book of Genesis. They tell us that God, he created everything that we see all around us by speaking it into existence. And the apex of this creation was mankind, who he made in his own image. And men and women, they were to live in right relationship and fellowship with God. But as the story goes, sin fractured this relationship when Adam and Eve failed to trust God's word. And in response to this disobedience, a curse of death fell upon the creation, but God promised that he would provide an answer to this curse from the seed of the woman. That's been a bit of a theme for us in recent weeks. Throughout the pages of scripture, this line of the the righteous seed is traced through Seth, to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, ultimately to Christ. And there's a whole bunch of biblical history that just got skipped over right now. There's a whole bunch more names on that list other than the four or five I I just mentioned. But the point that I'm making here is that the, the line of the seed is traced to Jacob, who has his name changed to Israel, and thus he becomes the first Israelite. And Jesus Christ would later be shown to be the perfect Israelite. But in the meantime, the nation of Israel represents a sort of a type of this chosen and perfect seed. The nation of Israel was therefore to be set apart as holy it was to be a beacon of light to the other nations of the world the other people groups that were all around them and god especially and spectacularly even cared for his chosen people think about the dramatic exodus from egypt the provision of food and clothes during 40 years of wandering in the wilderness the inspired leadership of men like aaron and moses and and others and all these things are just a few examples of god's provision and care for his people Before they entered the promised land, the Israelites, they were given the law through Moses. And obedience would bring blessing. And disobedience would bring curses. And for years, the Israelites, sadly, they lived largely
0: in disobedience. Now, see, this is where I may... I, I temp- typically depart from everyone else. I think it God chose the nation of Israel and I and I'm going to I know this is gonna, and I'll just throw it out as a hypothesis. People could, so that people can test it and argue against me. But I think the whole purpose of Israel was to demonstrate that here is a nation given blessing after blessing after blessing. They see the miracle of God. God is literally in the midst of them. And with all of these blessings, even with God being directly present with them in some, even some visible form with the Shekinah glory, even right there he gives them all of the, the worship the priest he gives them his revelation the t- commandments and get, what does Israel demonstrate that man even under the best circumstances right will still disobey will still turn from God will still break the law because we cannot Keep it. The entire nation demonstrates what happens if we place ourselves in trying to please God or, or walk with God by obeying his law. It's going to fail, 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 fail. It's going to end in judgment, death, and captivity. That uh, any system that says if you obey, you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be judged. It's going to be judgment, 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 judgment because of people's depravity. We cannot keep the law. The law law can never be kept. We will always be in violation of it. Even if God himself is with us, even if God is doing these miracles in front, even if we know without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God, we're still going to disobey and we will still turn to false gods. We will still turn to idolatry because that is the depravity in man's heart. Israel is the first case study of what happens when you take a nation and place them under the law of God. They will fail, 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 fail. So the only hope, as we see in Jeremiah, is God has to step in and say, okay, you couldn't, you didn't, you won't. I will. I will do this. 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 And it will be different than the way it was before. All right, now let's see how he approaches this.
1: And curses were to come crashing down during the lifetime of Jeremiah. Early on in their history, the Israelites, they demanded to have a human king like all the other nations around them. And after just three of these human kings, the kingdom would split in two with brother fighting against brother. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel was, was led by a string of nothing but wicked kings. And as a consequence, they were taken into captivity to Assyria. And they had been warned by a number of God's prophets that doom would befall their nation if they wouldn't repent. But Elijah and Isaiah and Hosea and others, they were all ignored. Then about a hundred years later, Jeremiah he brought a similar message to the southern kingdom of Judah. And one would think that Judah would have learned from the ne- negative example of their brothers to the north. In fact, it seems they almost did during the reign of King Josiah, when the book of the law was rediscovered in the year 622 BC. And due to the prophesying of men like Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah, the discovery of the law led to a great number of religious uh, reforms under Josiah. However, this would
0: simply prove to be the calm before the storm. And don't you get it? No matter how many times they discovered the book of the law, no matter how many times they recited the law, no matter how many times they memorized the law, no matter how many times they learned the law, no matter how many times they dedicated themselves to keeping the law, inevitably, they would violate, they would turn, they would rebel because of the depravity inside of them. The law cannot be obeyed. By man, it, we are incapable of keeping it. We may be able to, uh, we may be able to institute some religious reforms. We may be able to institute some external changes so that we have the appearance of righteousness. We have the appearance of godliness. But the reality is depravity is inside and it will ultimately eat away and manifest itself in some way, shape or form. It always shows up. Anyone reading the Old Testament, by the time you get to the Old Testament, you should be exhausted. You should be like, what is the solution? It's failure, 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 death, death, judgment, 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 death, death, judgment, 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 judgment. And finally, when you open up to the gospel of Matthew, you hear that they will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Someone's going to have to intervene and do what the people can't do. Keep the law perfectly, die for the sins of all of us who can't keep it, and then somehow give his righteousness to us, not by us earning it or us doing something, but by imputing it to us so that we can be declared perfect, holy, and righteous, even though we are not. That's the only solution. But I mean, he, he's going through and guess what the history is? Failure, 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 failure. That's what it is. It's a story of failure. Now, the
1: Assyrians who one century earlier, had overrun the northern kingdom of Israel, they had themselves since that time been overrun by the Babylonians. And so now caught between a fading but still very formidable Egypt on one side and an increasingly powerful Babylon on the other, Judah's king Josiah, he decided to place his confidence in geopolitical alliances, just as had the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he ended up losing his life in battle. And the kings that followed, they quickly unraveled his positive reforms and the people returned to their long-established habits of selfishness and immorality and idol worship and all sorts of abominable acts. Unfortunately, as William Van Gemmeren tells us, the practice of real politic had made Judah a nation like the other nations. Judah was left with very few distinctive marks of the Sinai or Zion traditions. It was in this historical climate, political climate, that Jeremiah was called to speak to God's people. God's chosen, they were to trust him. They trusted instead in economic prosperity, in military might, political alliances even foreign gods. They were to bring glory to God's name through obedience. They sought instead to glorify themselves and their own selfish ambitions. And by this time, God had made the point that he is merciful and patient. He had waited long enough for the people of his seed to repent. And Jeremiah was given the difficult task of telling his countrymen, time's up. This is the primary thrust of the story in the book of Jeremiah. It's no wonder Jeremiah is famous as the weeping prophet. He was preaching a death knell against his own people. Now, Jeremiah, yes, he, he prophesied against Judah's enemies, to be sure he did that as well. But at the core of his message, he was primarily concerned with the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem itself. And while there were other Prophets, false prophets, telling all the people everything was going to be just fine because, well, we've got the temple with us, don't you know? Jeremiah was saying, no, 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 no. You're doomed. Understandably, it was not a popular message. And so Jeremiah was either ignored, ridiculed, persecuted, and under threat of losing his life. So Jeremiah complained to God about the consequences of his calling. And God's response to Jeremiah basically was, Jeremiah, you better buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. (laughs) If Jeremiah thought things were tough early on, God said, you know what, you better steal yourself, young man, because in comparison to what's still to
0: come, you haven't seen anything yet. Now, this is all good summary and review and reminder. So this is one of the reasons we're doing this. This is just, again, going over the basic thrust of the message. I mean, hopefully all this reinforcement and reminder is helping you get the book of Jeremiah down. Now, I I am interested because he's going through all of this history. Remember, the whole point of this sermon is supposedly the fuller meaning of Jeremiah 29, 11. So I'm I'm hoping he's going to transition now into to chapter 29. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Let, let's see, let's see where he's going to go here. Let's see where he's going to go here. Let's see.
1: Surely life can be very hard in this world for a true prophet of God. As John Golden Gay writes, the visible mark of prophecy is, does the prophet turn people away from their evil way? Does he follow them in sin or lead them from it? Does he encourage adultery, and deceit, or resist it? Does he offer vain hope or unpleasant truth? Well, the unpleasant truth, the the hard judgment of Judah, was not merely a possibility. It was as good as a done deal. So much so that God tells his prophet to not even pray for his people anymore. It was just simply too late. We see that in Jeremiah chapters 7, 11, 14, and 15. But in the midst of all this darkness, there would be this ray of light. In chapters 30 through 33 in Jeremiah's book, these chapters focus on the glorious restoration that awaited Judah in the future. See, after the judgment, there would be deliverance.
0: Now, chapters 30 through 33. Now, I've focused on 31, 30 to 33. Those are the chapters you really, really, really need to go through carefully and look at all the promises. Everyone knows it's a promise of some kind of restoration. Everyone knows there's some kind of promises in chapters 30 to 33. Everyone knows. I think the promises really start in 29. So I would go 29 to 33 would be my way of breaking it down. 29 to 33. And what you should really do is go through 29 to 33 and just look, just in those chapters, every promise of what God As promising Judah and Israel, who the promise specifically is to, and what are the specifics of each promise? And then you can ask yourself, did that happen when they came out of Babylonian captivity? Was that fulfilled? Was that fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity? Was it fulfilled? Now, if you think you can f- have them all fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity and you can make it work, okay, then then there's no future promises. But I will tell you over and over again, those things did not happen coming out of Babylonian captivity. Not all of them. Some of them. So I think if... If coming out of Babylonian captivity happened literally, which it did, then any of the other promises have to be fulfilled literally. But I don't want, I want you to see it for yourself. Jeremiah 29 to 33, go through it and just make a list. Promise here, promise here. You've already got the, you've already done chapter uh, 31, right? You've got the 15 uh, I wills. You've pretty much already have Jeremiah 31 accomplished. So now just do 29, 30, 32 and 33, Make that a goal today. Try to do that today because, because then you will really, look, you may come to a different conclusion, but at least you're looking at it for yourself. Jeremiah even uses in
1: this context the phrase New Covenant, language of New Covenant. This is language that is found nowhere in the entire Bible until we get to the New Testament, except for in Jeremiah. So it's tempting to understand Jeremiah 29, 11 in merely this context. However, there's a problem if we do that. This glorious renewal, it is not the context of the passages that lead up to Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I mean, Jeremiah, he would be charged by the heart of heart for treason for what he writes in chapter 29, This traitorous thing Jeremiah says is that the Jews should not fight against the exile from their land in Judah. Instead, they should go willingly and they should work with their captors.
0: God has a plan. I don't know what's going on, but someone keeps trying to interrupt him. That's the second time. There's someone in the background. Either someone is disagreeing, someone's not happy with it. Someone's got something to say and he's not entertaining it. He's just speaking over them. He's just continuing. I don't know. I don't know the situation here. I'm not seeing the video. I feel it makes me very uncomfortable when I'm listening to it because I've been there as a pastor where all of a sudden you realize someone is talking and they're trying to make a counter argument in the middle of your sermon. I will never understand in my life how someone could, do, I don't know what's going on here. I'm just saying I have sat there in total, utter, like, dismay. I'm trying to preach and the person all of a sudden wants to start arguing with me. And you're kind of like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm pre, I'm preaching. And then what's even worse, and I talk about it all the time, when you're trying to preach and you can tell that someone's already clearly disagreeing and then they decide to just go rogue. And then in the middle of your sermon, they're just back there basically doing a Bible study. They're like, They're flipping the Bible. They're writing things down and they're not even listening to you anymore. And then, but then they want to argue with you after your sermon, even though they they didn't listen to 30% of the sermon, 40, 50% because they were arguing. It is insane how people will do that stuff. I don't get it. If you, if you think you can interrupt a sermon, if you think you know more, become a pastor. Okay. (laughs) don't Don't sit there and just argue, become your own pastor. Go start your own church. It is amazing, but I've witnessed it. I've experienced it. It is crazy. It's like, just let the pastor finish and then talk to the pastor in private after you have done a meaningful amount of study on your own. If you're not going to do the study, then just be quiet. If you do the study, at least for me, I'm more than willing to let, I got no problem listening to someone who's put forth the study because here's the thing. If you do your study, and I do my study, and we put forth the same amount of effort, then there's a high probability, you would at least think there's a probability that we should be much closer in understanding. Even if we disagree, there's got to be plenty of things we can agree upon. But people won't do that. So I don't know who's in the background trying. Maybe it's someone who has uh, maybe some type of handicap. And so they don't know better. I don't know um, because I haven't seen the video, but I, that's the second time. I don't know if you're hearing it, but, but what he does is he just speaks a little louder and just talks over it. So that's much better. Now, if it's someone with some kind of a handicap, then by, he's doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing, obviously. If it's someone just trying to argue, he's doing the right thing. I wouldn't do the right thing. I'd be like, yeah, yeah okay, what's going on? Okay, what's the issue? Right. Is there a problem? And then I would probably start trying to engage it because I'm I'm an idiot. Okay, so that's what I would probably do. When you should just say, Hey um, you know, what you probably should say is just to end it really quick. Is I'm in the middle of teaching, uh, so can we? Can you tell me your disagreement? Like, like, you almost want to just kind of uh, shut it down. And here, I don't know what's going on. So just if you hear that in the background, I mean, we have to address it because I'm hearing it. So, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting into, I'm interested in where he's going with this Jeremiah 29 thing because he seems to be implying that there's something going on in verse 11 that we cannot just, we can't understand it just in light of this context. And I'm like, so I, I don't know. We got to let him flesh this out. I don't know where this is going, but we had to address that. I don't know what's going on there in the background, because maybe we're going to hear it again. Here we go.
1: A remnant of his people and his plan involved his people going to Babylon. And Jeremiah, he wrote a letter to the exiles. And he told them, settle down
0: raise families this letter now this is also a major point of emphasis in the study of Jeremiah. You should probably you should probably look them up. If again if you want to just try to if you want to just make you a list of some of the key elements in Jeremiah, right? We we have their failure, the judgment, the condemnation over and over and over and over. We have God I will doing all of these supposed things for them that I don't think was fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity. We've emphasized all of that, but there's also another major emphasis. And he just alluded to it. The people in Judah are told to go with the Babylonians. Do not resist. Do not fight. Do not seek any kind of political alliance with anyone else. Submit to them. Surrender. Submit. Submit. Surrender. Those are concepts that right now in the American church, if you tell people, just submit, just surrender to, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to, I'm going to fight. I'm going to argue. I'm going to resist because resistance is what we should do. We have to stand against the tyranny. We have to fight. And well, Jeremiah is telling the people, nope, don't resist, don't fight. Just go, just surrender. In fact, those who stay to fight, There were the ones who were supposed to die. The ones who were going to live are the ones who were supposed to leave the city and go and surrender to the Babylonians, to the very pagan nation, not to godly leadership. And that concept of surrendering and submitting to authority goes from, you see it in Jeremiah, and of course you're going to see it again in Romans. I know people have reinterpreted Romans 13, but it's still there. You see it in Peter. You see it in numerous places in the New Testament. Now, I know someone's going to quote Acts, but, but, but wait, wait, wait. Remember in Acts when they were told, commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus? And Peter said, who do we obey, God or man? Please note who he was resisting. He was resisting the religious leaders who told him not to preach in the name of Jesus. Make sure. Now, I'm not saying if the civil government tells us not to preach in the name of Jesus, we shouldn't take a stand. I'm just saying that obviously the normal way of reacting is to surrender and to submit. That is the biblical model, whether we like it or not. And this plays out in Jeremiah over and over. And hey, guys, calm down. Just surrender. Just go. And they were like, what kind of treasonous idea? You need to stand against the tyranny. You need to stand against the new world order. You've got to stand against the deep state. You've got to fight against it. You've got to fight. And no, Jeremiah's like, nope, surrender, submit. And they were like, but why? Well, if God is in charge, whatever government is put in place, God put them there. So clearly it's your will, his will, for you to be under that leadership and your job is to live out your Christian life to the best of your ability under that leadership. Nobody liked it when Jeremiah said it and nobody likes it if you say it today. Form is the
1: content of Jeremiah chapter 29.
0: He told the exiles
1: to be peaceful to seek the benefit of the people who took them captive. And he also warned against any false prophets who would come along to say anything different about how they should respond to their circumstances.
0: Seek the benefit of the ones who've taken you captive. That message would be considered anathema in most American churches. You would be considered liberal, woke, a snowflake. I don't know what derogatory term they would throw at you. You would be refu- you would be considered weak and not manly. And we need a masculine Christianity, a warrior mindset. We need to stand up. We need to fight. That's the my- and it's like Jeremiah'd be like, no, 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 no. Seek peace. Seek the benefit of those who've taken you captive. Now, the only reason I'm pointing that out is not only was it true here, that same concept seems to be repeated again in the New Testament in numerous places.
1: And then he mentioned that in 70 years, things would be different. In 70 years. That's Jeremiah 29 verse 10. However... For two generations, practically, they were to pray for their captors. Graham Goldsworthy, he highlights a scandal of it all, writing, this would be unthinkable under the terms of the covenant promises if it were not for the promise of restoration to come. For the promise, the purposes of God to be centered in the great harlot city of Babylon must have been inconceivable to most Jews. However, It stands as the climax of the history of judgment on covenant breakers that pagans should be the instrument of God in the chastisement of his people. It is also an amazing expression of grace that God will sustain a remnant of the faithful until the right time should come for their restoration. Now, the 70 years that I mentioned, the 70 years of Jeremiah, these can be and have been understood in a a variety of ways through the years. Some say that refers to those years between the deportation from Jerusalem in the uh, year 605 BC to the return of the exiles under the order of King Cyrus in the year 538 BC. Now, that idea would require us to round up to 70 years, because if you do the math, it's more like 67, 68 years, something like that. Others think that the 70 years in Jeremiah refer to the period between the, the final deportation and the destruction of the temple, which takes place in 586 BC, up to the temple's rebuilding in 516 BC. Now it has the advantage of being 70 years. A third idea, it's similar to the first, in that it doesn't require us to be woodenly literalistic about the 70 years, but rather that we should see the period referring to the average human lifespan, which is, you know, 70-ish years. Well, then the angel Daniel of Daniel 9 comes and turns a whole bunch of this on its head by recasting the 70 years of 70 weeks or more precisely as 70 sevens. And this of course has also led to a whole bunch of disagreement within the church over the years. And there are dispensationalists they see each day within the week or within the sevens uh, as representing a year. And then they use this passage in support of their view that, uh, sees a post-rapture tribulation period of seven years. So there's that view. Others, they see the seventy years multiplied by seven to give us 490 years. And they see this period taking us from the time of Jeremiah and Daniel up to the ministry and the, the death, uh, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, there are various branches, by the way, within all these different schemes and views that I've shared uh, lots of various branches within these basic outlines of interpretive thought. But this sermon isn't about Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. It's about Jeremiah 29, verse 11.
0: If you did not know, and I'm glad he pointed that out, that's really good. That's really good. He he goes quickly through all the different systems and they can get convoluted and complicated. Just so that you know, there is, I know this is shocking, But if you listen to me, you you shouldn't be surprised by this. There's not even agreement on the 70 years. (laughs) When did the 70 years start? When do they end? Are they literal 70 years or are they symbolic 70 years? Why why the 70 years? Now, we talked about possibly the 70 years dealing with uh, them not uh, following the Sabbath laws in regards to the land. But I just I feel like I don't know when you start it and I don't know when you end it um but i know this it's got to be 70 years i just feel like that you have to make it literal i just do you start making it figurative and symbolic well then is the captivity literal and symbolic i think it has to be a literal 70 years so i'm not so worried about well where do i start it and where do i end it i just know god said they're going to be there for 70 years they were there for at least 70 years i know that they were there for 70 years. And I don't know does it go from the first time they were the the first group that was sent to captivity or was remember there were three were there three different times. I think I have the dates here. And this book right here uh the a dozen diamonds from Daniel. You see here um So these attacks were made against Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon. The first came in 606 BC, the second in 597 BC, and the third in 586 BC, all right? So um, in 606 BC, in the third year of Jehoiakim, uh, at the besieging of the city of Jerusalem and its attack by Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was taken into captivity. So there's 606 BC. So people were taken into captivity, right? In 606. When the second attack came in 597 BC, Ezekiel, who became an outstanding prophet, is taken into captivity in the year 586 BC. So now we have people being taken into 586 BC. The most devastating of all the attacks, I said, I'm sorry, when the second attack came, 597 BC, Ezekiel, who becomes an outstanding prophet, is taken into captivity, right? So there's 606, 597. In the year 586 BC, the most devastating of all the attacks, uh, the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, the walls of the city torn down, and the people taken into captivity with only a residue remaining. So you have 606, 597, 586. Which one of those? And I probably there will be a little argument. Was, was it 606 or was it 605? Was it 597 or 598? I think 586. I think I think that one is much more fixed. But which one of those began the 70 years? Where does the 70 years begin? You can have that debate. You can have that argument if you want to get into there. I just believe, look, you can, You. I mean, that's a rabbit you can chase. If you want to chase, how do we understand the 70 years? I just think you have to take them in a literal way. You have to. Babylon is literal. Judah is literal. Captivity is literal. Everything in here has been literal. The pro- false prophets are literal. Their messages, everything is is literal. So it has to be 70 years. I don't know where the counting starts. And I don't know where, I know the counting has to end you would think when they come out of captivity right Now you could argue it would it ends when they when they rebuild the temple but there's a delay remember they, they have, prophets have to be sent to them to keep them building the temple. there's a delay in getting the temple built. So and then how does this fit how does the 70 years in Jeremiah connects with the 70 weeks in Daniel? I mean, that, that is a good question. That is a good philological and eschatological question to consider. All right. Now, I understand he wants to go to verse 11, and that's good. And it's good that he brought these things up. But I, I just think it has to be 70 years. And we, we haven't dealt much with that controversy. Right, so it's a good thing that we listen to this. All right, here we go. So in the interest of time, let's just suffice it to say that
1: all these different interpretations, or most all of them anyway, uh, they basically have the same thing in view, just understood slightly differently. They all look to a future. A future when God would lead his people out of trouble and into a blessed time. So one way or another, the, the reference to this future event, we see it referred to in Christ's Olivet Discourse. It, it suggests ultimately that the, the cross of Christ is what should be understood as the principal fulfillment of this deliverance in the future.
0: Okay, wait, 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 wait. So the cross of Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this Deliverance? I got to put my thinking caps. I got to let him flesh this out. I got to let him flesh this out. This is this. Okay. Now, now I'm fascinated here. Now, now I want to know where he's going with this. And so then this really is
1: the, the context that leads into our verse that's under discussion here today. Clear in all of this is the fact that God is sovereign. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over individual leaders. And so God, he sends his people into exile using the Assyrians and the Babylonians as his tools, but he will restore them again. As the great theologian John Frame says, he sets up kings and deposes them. He chooses Cyrus, the Persian ruler, as his instrument to bring Israel back to the land of promise. Through the edict of this pagan king, God ends Israel's exile. Their return is, at every point, the work of God. Note also how the Lord says, I will, in Jeremiah's prophecy of restoration in chapter 30. Thus, God sets the stage for the central point in human history. It is to restored Israel that God grants the visit of his son, Jesus.
0: Okay, so restored Israel was present when Jesus shows up in the first coming. So he seems to imply that all the restoration promises occur before Jesus' first coming. That seems to be the implication. I don't know if I can agree with that. Because when you open up the New Testament, they're under the control of Rome, I don't know if that looks anything like the promises that were made to them.
1: So Jeremiah twenty nine verse eleven, it is a verse of hope, and more than this, it's a verse of assurance, and therefore, it's really it's a verse of faith, since faith is the assurance of things hoped for and not yet seen, as we learn from Hebrews chapter eleven. So there is no uncertainty that's involved. God has a plan. He's in control. He will see it through to fruition. And The verses that immediately follow in Jeremiah's letter, they say that God's people will, again, call upon his name. And not only will they seek God, but they will absolutely find God by turning their hearts toward him. So their captivity, it will come to an end. You sometimes feel like you're in exile. You're a captive. In Babylon, there will be no more
0: exile. Okay, he immediately jumps to us. Just so that you know the promises here. So clearly, look, look, clearly this is to, I mean, look, Jeremiah 29.1. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders, which were carried away captive and the priests and of the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right. Clearly, uh, clearly that's who it's to. There's no question that is who it's to. Then look, note verse 11 or, or then verse 10. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. the you are those who are in captivity and perform my good word toward you. Those who are in captivity and causing you to return to this place. You, that is, a, he is going to return them to the place. Those who are in captivity, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me whom you shall search for me with all your heart. When you shall search with me with all your heart and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, saith the Lord. I will bring you again into the The place where I caused you to be carried away captive, because I have said, The Lord hath raised up a prophet, uh, up prophets in Babylon. Now you look at everything that's going to happen to them, all the promises. What was it fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity? To me, that's the real question. The real question is not for this to, I should then jump from here, jump to me and make it about us. Uh, Do you feel like you're in exile? Do you feel like you're in captivity? No, no, no. Yeah. Now, ultimately we will be delivered from captivity and glorification. I got no problem, but this is about them first and foremost. Now let's see what else he does with this.
1: For God's remnant will be no more. This is wonderful news. So what's wrong with seeing this verse as a verse of comfort for the the individual Christian believer today? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing wrong with this particular understanding as far as it goes. The problem comes, though, when our understanding goes no. Further than this, when we see only the blessing in this verse, we can
0: lose sight of the context of judgment. The problem is it's not for us. Now, I got no problem. If you can show me which principle that you think is for me, then you run to the New Testament and find where that principle is articulated for me. Alright. So I, when, when he says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, that you are the people in captivity. There's no, just, just from a textual standpoint, just from a grammatical standpoint, this is for the people in Babylon in captivity, say the Lord. Thoughts of peace? Okay. Now, does God have thoughts of peace for us? Now, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Thoughts of peace for my salvation or thoughts of peace in a practical way? Because a lot of people who are Christian, their life is not filled with peace. It's with trial and trouble and pain and suffering and uh, and not evil. Are you saying that God, God has thoughts that he's never going and any way, shape, or form to, to cause any problems for, for you. There's no, no bad things are going to happen. Well, then that, that's what, that's the part he's got to articulate. Which part of this is applicable? Which part is applicable? I got no problem if you're going to say it's applicable. Just show me which part specifically you're referring to. Show me where that promise is articulated in the New Testament for those beyond those who are in Babylonian captivity. Then explain to me exactly what that looks like.
1: and tribulation. The message of this verse is delivered in a letter from Jeremiah to God's chosen people while they were in exile. The people were at that very moment experiencing judgment from God's own hand. And yet, here we have this promise of astounding restoration that would come through that judgment. So here we have an indicator of the ultimate judgment that would bring the ultimate restoration. Approximately five centuries or 490 years, if you prefer, later when our incarnate God offered himself to take the judgment upon himself. Let's also remember that God, He says in Genesis chapter 3, that He would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. During Jeremiah's lifetime, we see this very clearly with the enmity between Babylon and Judah. And yet God tells His people, make peace with this enemy. Because God has it all worked out. The Jews, they, they don't have to take things into their own hands. Rather, trust God and similar to this we we should remember that there are these words from jesus where he tells his church she will be persecuted just as he was persecuted and peter tells us it's a privilege it's a blessing really to share in the sufferings of christ but we will be persecuted and yet the church is as far as it's up to her to seek peace with her enemies god has a plan and part of that plan has been revealed to us. Regarding the enemies of God's chosen remnant of the seed, God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, said Deuteronomy 32. So the comfort of Jeremiah 29, verse 11, it, it's not that one who trusts in God will be spared pain and suffering. The comfort is in the fact that God will see his people through the pain and suffering. And he will ultimately deal with the cause of that pain and suffering. The exile, according to this is Willem van Gemmeren. The exile was an era of desolation. And at the same time, an era of restoration. Restoration. The fall of Jerusalem meant the desolation of the temple, alienation from the Lord, the break of the people from the land of promise, and the removal of the Davidic monarch. The exile also had a positive impact in bringing about the unity of a godly remnant from both Israel and Judah. It opened up an era of spiritual transformation by the spirit of restoration evidenced by a renewed loyalty to Yahweh, to the canonical revelation, to his wisdom and judgment, and by a renewed hope in the full restoration. Likewise, this 11th verse in Jeremiah 29 can bring comfort to the individual. But this is not a verse that is aimed merely or even primarily at the individual. Again, I want us to remember Jeremiah is a letter that was written to fellow Jews who were in exile. A group of Jews in exile. He's writing to the group. This is a corporate letter that he's written. It wasn't just one Jew that was in exile. It was rather the entire basket of good figs who were in exile. I'm referring here to the vision of the two fig baskets recorded in Jeremiah chapter 24. The good figs, they represent the remnant of God's chosen Faithful people, the bad figs, they represent those who have rejected God. And in a counterintuitive twist, it's the good figs that are sent into exile. See, God is using the situation to purify a remnant unto himself. Each of the individual figs has its place in filling that fig basket, I would suppose. right? Logic would dictate that that's true. But the message of Jeremiah, it's delivered to the group, not just one fig. It's the group, the fig basket. This is the audience that's in view. This is the point of the lesson. Therefore, when God says that he has a plan to prosper you, he's talking about a corporate you. In certain portions of the United States, particularly those portions south of Richmond, shall we say, might better translate this verse as, I know the plans I have for y'all, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper y'all and not to harm y'all. Plans to give y'all hope in a future. God's plans are for his people through the saving work of
0: Jesus Christ our Lord. And in so- okay, I think this is where we have the divide in Christianity. See, some reduce this to a remnant. Hey, this is a remnant. And that remnant is basically, quote unquote, God's people, which, quote unquote, is the church. Right now, he has not dogmatically asserted this, but that's the only way I can interpret that he's he's trying to get away from the nationalistic approach where I believe God made promises to a nation and he will keep that promise to the nation, the nation. Israel will be restored to the land. The nation will fulfill the get all the land promises. The nation will. Other than, no, 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 this is for a remnant and then uh, they are restored in Christ and therefore it's just the remnant, which is God's people, which is the church. It really, you've got, either you you hold that Israel is a nation and will be, God has a plan for that nation. He keeps that nation somewhat distinct from the church and those promises and he will fulfill those promises to the nation, and there will be a national salvation of Israel at some point. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not, quote unquote, the church and the the body of Christ and those who believe, but there are nationalistic promises to a nation that has not been fulfilled. He seems to want to take some of these nationalistic promises and say, no, these promises are only for the remnant, and these are somehow fulfilled in Christ, Seemingly that he wants to spiritualize some of these promises. And that's why I'm telling you, read Jeremiah 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. You look at the promises and see if that works. I just know this. There is no spiritualizing the judgments. There's no spiritualizing the actual death and suffering that actually occurred. I do know that.
1: So far as each individual is Part of the whole, this verse then does apply to them individually. But inappropriately, though, seeing this verse exclusively or even primarily as a message to just the individual is to minimize the grandness of this word from God. He has a plan for a whole people. He will prosper and not harm an entire nation of believers
0: throughout the epochs of human history. See, he's making it about the nation of believers, not the nation of Judah. So he, so in a roundabout way, he he says we should not, if we take this and make it about us, we we don't see the true beauty of this. I argue when you steal it from the people, the promise was made for the nation of Israel. And you make it about the nation of believers, you destroy the beauty of the passage. Because this whole thing is not how we as a, as a, as a group of, of believers have been suffering in captivity. This is a promise for those suffering in captivity that not only are you going to be delivered, there are these future promises for your, for your, for the generations to come, for the nation ultimately are going to get these promises. If you steal it and make it about the individual, I think that's not fair to the original recipients. If you steal it from the original recipients and just make it about believers in general, I don't think it's fair. In ways that we don't
1: even recognize or ways that we rarely acknowledge during those rare moments when we do recognize them. To accomplish this purpose God has always preserved a faithful remnant of contrite praying people who live their lives in abandonment to him, abandonment to his will.
0: When has there ever been a group of people who live their lives in abandonment to God and in abandonment to his will? There's always been people who believe in God, who live their lives selfishly and ungodly in their sin. there's always, there's always, Hey, there's always this remnant of super Christians who they do everything right. But wherever you think the super Christians are, look a little deeper and you see the same depravity that's always been in the people of God going from Genesis to revelation. And this group of people
1: will, Receive renewed bodies and will be made holy and will live in harmony with one another, with God, in his kingdom forevermore. And this is a powerful promise. And when it's understood on this larger scale, it,
0: it magnifies the work and the love of God. So I disagree. When you try to look at it at a larger scale, you're missing the beauty of who it was to. A godless nation who could not keep the law, who God steps in and says, hey, guys, 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 watch my sovereign grace, my eternal love for this nation, because they fail. I'm going to do all of this for them. I will keep all of my promises and they will become an object lesson that you can trust in my grace and mercy and my sovereign election. there you have it. You can draw your own conclusions. You can listen to the rest of that sermon, the fuller meaning of Jeremiah 29, 11 by Troy Skinner on the Sermons 2.0 app. By all means, go finish it. Um, you can go listen to the rest and you can draw your own conclusions. I would just challenge you, listen to his perspective, then read for yourself, Jeremiah 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. And look at all the promises God makes to them. You can also go over to Ezekiel and all the promises that are there. All right, you can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. We will be doing more in the book of Jeremiah throughout the day. And then, of course, we'll definitely try to go out this evening with a number of of broadcast, and we'll just see what we can do. Um, but I I'm, I'm, I'm I, I hope that some of this is reinforcing and reminding you and helping you in the summer of 2023 with the best understanding of the book of Jeremiah that I could possibly give you. Thank you for listening. Email me newsif at yahoo.com. Any questions or thoughts, love to get them. Everyone have a great day. God bless.